Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, my name is John. We can clap. We're excited. He is risen. Thank you so much for celebrating Easter with us this morning. And we as a church, uh, we're really trying to do two things really well, love God and love people. And if you are here for the first time, I just want to speak to you straight this morning. I'm not sure what brought you here. I'm not sure who brought you here. I'm not sure what you think of church, Jesus, Christianity. And I just want to say from the get-go, that's okay. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, uh, you're good here. Uh, you belong before you believe. We're a church that believes in you and will love you and your family no matter what uh, season of life you're in or where you are on your own spiritual journey. We believe the church should be the most loving and accepting community on the planet. And we want to invite you back next week as we explore the kind of church we're called to be here at Prodigal through the movie, The Greatest Showman. And so uh, this is going to be a fun sermon series. We'll have some clips and some different music from the, the movie and really use it as a modern day parable. Uh, and uh, it's going to be incredible. There may or may not be a seven foot tall elephant, cardboard cutout, that will be here <laughs> next Sunday for our Greatest Showman series. Here at Prodigal Church, we come together every Sunday morning as a bunch of ragtag, bunch of liars, dreamers, misfits, saints, and sinners, and we look and learn from Jesus. And I loved it that I get to be a part of it. Uh, this past week, uh, my wife and I took our two kids to go see the Easter Bunny. And uh, this is a picture of my kids. Uh, Dex is five. Ivy is almost two. The Easter Bunny's a lot smaller than I remembered. Uh, we had a great time. And hopefully you guys get a chance to take some pictures with your family. And a bigger Easter Bunny is here. Uh, we're going to have a blast after service. In 1922, a famous archaeologist named Howard Carter discovered King Tut's tomb. It's one of the most famous discoveries of the ancient world, and the world learned a ton about this king just from discovering his tomb. We learned that he ruled around 1344 BC at the age of nine. We learned that there's some violence that he absorbed when he was at a young age because there was wounds discovered on his hands. We also learned of his values. He valued wealth. It took about seven weeks to get all the treasure out of the tomb. And consider by contrast what we learn from the tomb of Jesus. Unlike the tomb of King Tutankhamun, uh, Jesus' tomb was empty. He gave everything he had during his life and ministry on earth because he loves you. And the empty tomb becomes a pivot point in human history. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And it is such a momentous universal event that... It's a challenge to almost make it personal, but the resurrection of Jesus is deeply personal because Jesus had you and I at the forefront of his mind when he went to that cross on Good Friday and when he arose from the dead on Easter Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 16. It's the second book of the New Testament. If you don't have your Bibles, no worries. The, the text will be up on the screens. It says this, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. 
You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Did you notice that the author singles out Peter, right? He says, but go tell the disciples and Peter. Why does he do this? Another translation says, go tell his disciples, especially Peter. Where was Peter? Why did Mark, the author, single him out? Quick backstory to kind of shed some light on this. Peter was the rock. He was the rock on whom Jesus was going to build his church. Uh, One time Peter told Jesus, hey, if everyone else abandons you, I won't. He was close to Jesus. And then Jesus was arrested and everybody scatters. But Peter follows from a distance. Okay, Uh, everyone else scatters. And as Jesus is being led away in handcuffs, Peter's kind of off in the distance following, seeing what's going to happen. And as Jesus is taken into his overnight cell, he wants to hang out in the courtyard, perhaps maybe to devise a plan of escape for Jesus. And then a girl asks Peter in a very friendly way, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And by her tone and her words, she expects Peter to answer the negative, to answer right in the negative. So she just needs assurance to let him through the gate. And it's so natural and easy to just smile and go, you're not one of his disciples, are you? No, no. It's the first temptation. It's very subtle. What else is he going to do? He can't be much good outside the gate. So I can deny that I know Christ so that I could be closer. Um, Ever told just one lie? No, because you often need other lies to support that lie, right? Lies are like chips and salsa. (laughs) You can't just have one, right? Have you ever known anybody ever to grab a chip, dip it in the salsa, take a bite and go, I'm satisfied, I'm done. (laughs) It's ridiculous, that's impossible. They're delicious. Uh, Sarah makes fun of me every time we go to a Mexican restaurant because I say the same thing every time when the waiter comes up. She, she gives the chips and the salsa, and I, and I look at the salsa, and I kind of hold it in my hand, and I go, we're going to need like three or four more of these. And the waiter looks at me like, oh, okay, like I'm kidding, and I go, no, I'm not. Three or four more, please. <laughs> There's one particular restaurant that we walk into, and uh, I can see the waiter in the kitchen, you know, run to the kitchen and say, we're going to need a, you know, punch bowl of salsa for table seven. That handsome pastor and his wife are <laughs> sitting. Only some of that's true. For Peter here, he's asked, you don't know the man, do you? <laughs> it's a justifiable fib. I find it interesting that I just call denying Jesus a justifiable fib. Don't you and I do that as well, right? It was only one lie. It was only one time. It's not a big deal. I could have done a lot worse. These are all just justifiable fibs. And then Peter's asked again by someone else, this time in a much bolder way. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. It wasn't just a head shake. It wasn't a, uh-uh. No, he said, no, I'm not. Then, uh, and notice how he keeps slipping deeper and deeper. The further you go with a lie, the harder it is to keep up. Then a servant of one of the religious leaders confronts him again. He goes, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now, Peter can no longer respond with a simple no. Uh, it's not convincing them. Another gospel tells us that at this point, he begins to swear and to cuss to reinforce his no. What the bleep? I don't know the man. 
calm down, Pete. What started as a little white lie, one justifiable fib, Peter, the rock, the one whom Jesus will build his church, ends up cursing and swearing that he doesn't even know this Jesus. Now, this is on Thursday, okay? And we don't hear from Peter again uh, until Sunday. So now we go back to the question that we began with. Where was Peter on that first Easter Sunday? Was he not with the others? Was he sulking in his own misery because he had denied Christ three times? He was alone in his failure, allowing the recent past to determine his present. And this happens all the time with us, right? In the midst of our own difficulties and shortcomings, our default is sulking, retreating, and then it, it, it comes out in our lives in negativity, exaggeration, and frustration. Have you noticed this? As a culture, why are we so negative? Why are we so negative? First, negative comments are often an attempt to modify someone else's behaviors, right? Parents put down their kids, wives insult their husbands, husbands malign their wives, because we believe this is the best way to make our displeasure known. So we're negative. Let me say this clear, clearly. Negativity is not the best way to change behavior. Love is. Always has been, always will be. It's just a fact of life that if we want someone to respond kindly to us, it helps for us to be positive and encouraging as well. From food service to our families, love is always more transformative than attitude. And it's so true with our families. But you might be thinking, well, you don't understand. My kids are crazy. Okay? I've asked them a thousand times, and then I just finally snap. These are defaults, right? Exaggeration, negativity, frustration. Your focus will determine your feelings. Corey Ten Boom, who suffered in a Nazi death camp, explained how to overcome discouragement by focusing on God. She said this, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. You sick of getting and dishing out discouragement and negativity? Shift your focus from the problem to looking up. Where are you focused? Where are you focused? Yourself, your problems, or Christ? So here, after the resurrection, we find Peter in desperate need of encouragement. Once again, your, your focus will determine your feelings. We can't always choose what we experience, but we can choose how we respond to these, those experiences. And the best way to overcome your negativity is to fo focus in on something bigger and better. Hear this. Th there is an inextricable link between what we say and how we live. Psychologists have demonstrated this as well, that our negative words and, th and thoughts can actually become self-fulfilling prophecies in our own lives and the lives of others. I shared this with our church a while back, but I think we could use a reminder at times. Because there is such a deep connection between what we say and how we live, every time you say something, you should just end the phrase with, and that's the way I like it. And then you can just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, at the end if you want. Just add that as well. But think about it for a minute. If you say things like, we're always going to be in debt, we're never going to get out of debt, and that's the way I like it. It might change the way you speak. My kids are always going to disobey. They're never going to follow the Lord. And that's the way I like it. 
I'm always going to be overweight, and I'll never be disciplined enough to get into the gym and work out, and that's the way I like it. The reality is the words we speak are directing the course of our lives. And the simple principle is this. If you want to see it, you're going to have to learn to say it. Let's start speaking God's word over our situation. Every time we're tempted to say, man, I'm going to go bankrupt. There's no way out of this debt. We need to stop and then say, I know my situation may look bleak, and I know that my finances are tight, but my God is big enough to supply all of my needs in Christ Jesus. I know my kids are acting like idiots right now, but they're following the wrong crowd. But my Jesus leaves the 99 and pursues my kid with the scandalous love and grace that showed on the cross, and I believe they're going to come back. If you want to see it, you're going to have to learn to say it. And sometimes we need the words of others. You see, the women still had to go and say it to Peter. They're terrified. They get to the empty tomb and they say, go tell the disciples, especially Peter. There's so much in those words that the angel spoke to the woman at the tomb. It'll be on the screens. But go tell his disciples and Peter. It was as if to say, Peter, I know you denied me. I know you failed, but I still love you. I still want you. Mark didn't have to include that little line, that and Peter. And he didn't include it for Pete's sake, okay? <laughs> Pete was dead when Mark wrote his book, okay? Pete was already dead, so he didn't include it for Pete's sake. He, cre- he, he left it in there for our sake, for people who would eventually perhaps fail as well. He included for all of us who would someday fail, who would someday deny Jesus. Like when I read this, I read and I go, go tell the disciples, especially John. Especially John. I I know how many times John has messed up. I I still want him. I still want to use him. But it's not just John. It's Adam. It's Kyle. It's Ashley. It's Sandy. It's you. It's me. Jesus says, every one of you, I know what you've done. I know all the skeletons in your closet. And I choose you. I love you. You're called. Your past doesn't define you. The resurrection declares that the worst moment is not the last moment. That's the gospel. The Son of God was nailed to an old rugged cross. He he was put in a sealed tomb. Heaven went silent. The worst thing that could have happened, happened. But Sunday was coming. The Easter story tells us that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection is on its way. Look at this verse. This is just an incredible verse. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's it's a great verse, right? Powerful verse. And it's true. Love conquers, covers sin, failures. Where is this verse found? Let's just see the reference. 1 Peter Let's maybe use some deductive reasoning skills here. Who do you guys think wrote 1 Peter? (laughs) That's right. As an old man, remembering the love of God that was shown him when he denied Christ, Peter discovered in a new way that love conquers. On Easter, light defeated darkness, love vanquished hate, and life conquered death. For those of you guys who live in Fresno, in Clovis area, how many of you guys remember like two Tuesdays ago when it was super windy? Does anyone remember that? Okay, if you have anything in your backyard, like it, it fell over during that windstorm. I've been trying to run more, okay? Trying. And uh, 
that Tuesday, I go, I, I'm going you know, to press through. And so I remember I parked my car, and I start running. And it's so windy. Like, what's left of my hair is, like, way back. And uh, I got thirsty, so I stopped at a park. I went to a water fountain, and it's, like, you know, it's in my face. I had to French kiss the water fountain at the park to get any water at all. But I kept going. Honestly, if, if, if as I was running, if I jumped, I thought I would go backwards. Like, I thought that was going to happen. The first mile and a half, I thought I was going to die. Every step had the world against me. But you know what? When I turned around, I felt like the flash. <laughs> Literally, lightning emanating out of my body as I'm beaming back towards my car. The wind was behind me, pushing me faster and faster. I looked at my app, and I was almost double the speed of the first mile and a half. You might be feeling like Peter. The world is against you, and you're running against a hurricane, but things will turn around, and that hurricane will then propel you forward, not to just survive, but to thrive and move even faster. You won't just make it. Look at what Peter does when he hears that, that the tomb is empty. Luke chapter 24, he says this. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. He ran. He heard the news. He was no longer sulking, drowning in the past. He was moving forward to find Jesus. Are we? Are we? We need what Peter needed. Someone to tell us, your future needs you, your past doesn't. Your future needs you, your past doesn't. Peter hears about this empty tomb and he runs to investigate it. What will you do? If you were to get a letter in the mail on official attorney letterhead, okay, it looks legit. And it was addressed to you, your name specifically, you open it up, and it says that you had a distant relative that just recently passed, and he had no living heirs, but he left you an immense fortune totaling $115 million. You would, what would you think? You'd think, it's a scam, right? It's not real. There's scams left and right. I can't tell you how many times I get an email that says, if you click this, you'll win, you know. It's a scam but it's on official letterhead, you know? Uh, it's got to be a scam. It's not real. But be honest. Before you throw it in the trash, you'll call just to make sure. <laughs> right? Before you throw that letter in the trash, you'll call because the offer is too great not to look into. It's too great. And so it is with the resurrection of the Son of God. We're prone to view it through the negative lens, right? It's got to be a scam. Nobody rises from the dead. I would say this. It's worth looking into because the offer is too great. All of history hinges on this point. People ask me all the time, you seem like a reasonable guy. You really believe this resurrection stuff? Wasn't it just a metaphor uh, for dying to ourselves, you really believe in a little resurrection? Not only do I believe in it, I'm counting on it. What are you counting on? 
As we close, consider the discovery of that other tomb back in Egypt. Howard Carter, the archaeologist, spent 10 years of his life searching for King Tut's tomb. 10 years of digging. And on November 4th, 1922, he took the first steps down into the tomb. His life's work. He had spent half a million dollars in 1922 money, okay? In a decade of his life. And as they dug along the steps, they put a light in. And they said, what do you see? And he says, marvelous things. And then he steps out of the tomb, collapses to his knees, and puts his face in his hands. And they said, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he said, 10 years ago, I dug eight inches from this tomb. 10 years of his life wasted, and he was this close. He missed it. Don't waste any part of your life. Don't miss Jesus this morning because he's this close. He's real. He loves you. He loves me. God, I thank you so much for your resurrection. I thank you that death couldn't hold you. I thank you, God, that on the cross and with your resurrection, death was arrested. That, God, that you bore the shame and the pain that we deserve. God, we thank you that you showed us that love makes a way, that you showed us what God is like. God didn't die because he was mad at us. He died because he was madly in love with us. And we thank you for that truth, Jesus. God, may we go and show that kind of love to a world that so desperately needs it, to our homes. God, may we leave negativity behind as we speak resurrection, as we speak love, as we speak love, as we speak life, as we speak light into our homes, to our workplace, our churches, in our city, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we declare that death could not hold this King of Kings?